Marshala sounds familiar, doesn't it? We often hear about this so-called martial law, yet some still lack knowledge about it. Proclamation 1081 issued on September 21, 1972 by President Ferdinand E. Marquez, remember? That is just the reason why our country is placed under martial law. Martial law includes the temporary substitution of military authority for civilian rule and is usually invoked during the war, rebellion, or natural disaster. When martial law is in effect, the military commander of an area or country, the Marquesas at that time, has unlimited authority to make and enforce laws. During this time, our country and its people suffered human rights violations. People were killed or some went missing for no reason. Moreover, our economy dropped and suffered at this time. The big question is, do people still think of the tragedy that happened? Thought of the welfare of the victims? Or maybe this news about martial law in various newspapers is now just fish wrappers in the wet market? Perhaps the history is revised by the unknown trolls on the internet and believed by many. Sadly, some of our fellow Filipinos forgot what happened and consider this era a golden one. Good thing we are here to enlighten you about the real happenings at this point by giving you a tour around our country. So brace yourselves and fasten your seatbelts. You might as well prepare tissue for this exploration that is about to get thrilling and emotional simultaneously. Listeners, stay tuned as we reveal stories of martial law victims around the country in this podcast entitled Unraveling Stories of Martial Law Victims, a virtual tour. Let us resurface the submerged, listen to the unheard, and remember the forgotten. Welcome to the journey where we will unravel stories of martial law victims around the Philippines. Let's ride this jeepney and start our journey. We have arrived at our first destination. This is the story of one of the martial law survivors whose experience remains untold to many. She is Trinidad Herrera Repuno popularly known as Catherineing, a victim of the inhumane electrocution practiced during the martial law period whose memories and battle scars during this era have never faded. Catherineing was one of the first women leaders in Tondo, Manila. One of their projects was to form an organization for poor urban communities and a group fighting for their rights to land ownership and housing. She was arrested once when they were attempting to save the neighborhood from being demolished from a project of Imelda Marcos. The project, whose main objective is to enhance the beauty of Pasig River, and they were brought to the basement of Malacanang. A few hours later, they were released, and no one was punished or harmed. But on April 1977, she was caught by the Manila police in Quezon City. They brought her to Camp Krame in Quezon City for interrogation. And that was the beginning of the darkest chapter of her life. 
Herrera can still tearfully recall her nightmarish experience as if it only happened yesterday. She was placed in a small and very cold room with her thumbs tied to electric wires. The wires was connected to a military field phone, so each time they cranked it, it sent electric shocks. They continued tormenting her despite the fact that she was already bleeding and screaming in pain. The police even raised the voltage when she denied being a communist, allowing the current to enter her body. And when they stopped and she thought it was over, they tied wires to her breast, and during those dreadful periods, she feared she was about to die. The police insisted that she was a communist even though she wasn't. She was even forced to sign a blank piece of paper, but she refused and insisted on speaking with her lawyer. Then, she was subsequently taken to a detention center in Bigutan, all while she was not in her normal state. She would even shout in her dreams. However, the other detainees assisted her in her recovery, and she was eventually released. As she reminisces, Catherine has uttered that she cannot forget what they did to her. That is why she believed up until now that Marcos was not human. She hopes everyone will understand that martial law is unjust for our country and that the youth should never idolize a tyrant like him, nor his family who has never acknowledged their sins. Our travel will continue as we unravel another victim story in the region of Luzon. Bonifacio Parabuac Ilagan, often known just as Boni Ilagan, one of the known victims and one of those who became vocal about their experience. He is a Filipino playwright, screenwriter, filmmaker, journalist, and editor that's best known for numerous socially conscious, critically acclaimed works in theater, film, and television. While he is having the spotlight now, he experienced the worst, for him, tragedy. Let's take a look at what happened to Bonnie Ilagan in the regime of Marcos Sr. Ilagan, then a 23-year-old student activist, was on the run from Bongbong's father, dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr., who had declared martial law and was hunting down political opponents and dissidents. In April 1974, Ilagan's flock ran out. An intelligence unit burst into the safe house where he and his fellow publishers of an underground newspaper were hiding. Ilagan mentioned that they started the torture in the house and he thinks that they wanted them to be demoralized immediately so that they could offer no resistance. For the next two years, he was held prisoner at Camp Krame, the headquarters of the Philippine National Police in Manila. Ilagan's captors burned his feet with a flat iron. They made him lie between two cots suspended by only his head and feet and bit him when he sagged or fell. The torturers called it San Juanico Bridge, named after a span Marcus built as a gift for his wife Imelda now 92 years old. Iligan's voice caught as he describes how interrogators forced a stick into his penis trying to get him to talk. This is the fact that took a long time before he was able to share because according to him, he was in denial. In the Philippines, Bonifacio Ilagan survived prison, 
political violence, and the disappearance of his sister, all at the hands of Ferdinand Marcus Sr.'s dictatorship. The unraveling will continue and will be ready to resurface after the short break. Huwag kayong tanggap lang ng tanggap ng information. There's so many trolls now. There's so many wrong or false information. How can they differ that? You're still listening to Unraveling Stories of Martial Law Victims, a virtual tour. And we are back. Thank you for continuously tuning with us. Again, prepare yourselves as we continue this journey. We are here in the region of Visayas. This was the story of Amanto Picardal when he was only 18 years old. He posted his first-person experience on his Facebook account and was featured in different media outlets. It was the first anniversary of the Martial Law Declaration, September 21, 1973. Picardal, with the three other seminarians, was struggling to draft the leaflets containing the denunciation of martial law and a call for people to resist the dictatorial regime. Later, as he was walking alone in the dark streets of downtown Cebu, he suddenly felt hands grabbing him from behind. His neck and arms were also tightly held by other men. One of the men then aimed his 45 caliber pistol at him and threatened him not to move and that he was under arrest. A gun was aimed at him? I don't think one could ever escape that, especially because he was outnumbered, right? That is true. It was very scary to think of. After that, a car pulled in beside them and that is where he was shoved in. He sat between two men that captured him while the third man sat in front. The car sped along Jones Avenue and entered Camp Sergio Osmeña. He was then brought to the office of Constabulary Security Unit on the third floor and dumped inside the room. This room you're referring to is quite familiar to me. If I remember correctly, they called this Dragon Room because it was small, dark, and windowless. I guess, at the same time, we could also say hopeless, don't you think? Precisely. Basically, that was where they conducted tactical interrogations, physical and mental abuse, and shaming. There was a time when he lost consciousness because of the horrendous pain that the torture caused. Instead of giving him water, he was forced to drink Tandoi rum. Then, he was asked for the identity and location of his comrades. But he didn't reveal them because it would put Amanda's comrades in the same danger as him. Instead, he told them false information that would make the torturers believe that he was giving in and that he was actually being cooperative. It worked and the torture stopped for a while. On October 3, 1973, Picardal with two other prisoners were taken to La Hogue Detention Center. There were burly men with tattoos covering their bodies that asked for their identity and cases. I am Amado Picardal and I am a political detainee, answered Picardal. One man then told him that political prisoners were respected there, hence no harm was coming his way. Well, that's a relief. However, the two prisoners with him who were just teenagers too had criminal offenses. 
They were then immediately subjected to what they called the baptism. This was an initiation rite for new prisoners. Right. I also heard about that baptism. They were brought to the comfort room and their faces were dunked into that toilet bowl with urine and excrement. As if they did not suffer enough that the very same night, they were physically abused and sex-starved prisoners sodomized them. A crude design of a clenched fist with the number 1081 was tattooed in Picardo's left arm. Actually, in his Facebook post telling the stories from September 21, 2020, he has their pictures of the said tattoo that until now serves as the symbol of his experience during the martial law. He believes that he was very fortunate that Father Decena, the seminary director, visited him three times a week, followed up on his case and regularly wrote to Picardo's mother and father to give updates about his case. On October 28, 1973, he was transferred to the political detention center in Camp Lapu-Lapu. He was warmly welcomed by singing, recitation of poems, and comedy skits, and they ended that night singing Bayanko. According to Picardal, the conditions of the prison there were not as harsh as some thought. He was brought to the office of General Louis Armour, the third Chief of Commander. His mama and his youngest sister was there. His uncle, retired Colonel Jose Nadara, had earlier written to General Armour asking for Picardo's release. His uncle was General Armour's former commanding officer from way back. After a long lecture, the general signed Picardo's release paper. Lastly, he was also asked to sign a document declaring that he was treated well and that no torture occurred during his imprisonment. He was hesitant to sign it but he has left with no choice as he believed that they would not release him if he refused to do so. He was brought back to the detention center and packed his things. He gave some of his clothes to his fellow detainees and finally say goodbye to them. On April 15, 1974, he was free at last, but he felt he was a different person. He had been hardened by torture, isolation, violence, boredom, hunger, and trauma. Stated Picardal, I was released to a bigger prison, the Philippine society under a dictatorial rule. Just a random thought, do we need to consider ourselves lucky that we were not alive yet during that martial law era? Um, I think yes, but on the other hand, no. As per my research, some argued that though abuses were committed during martial law, some says that life was good for those who did not try to fight the government. I understand why they call it the Golden Era because Marcus really made a very good impression during his first two years, starting from the booming infrastructure and target economy. But research proved that six out of ten families were poor by the end of his rule. Come, let's take a trip of Visayas. Ooh, I love there. They have one of the best bitches in the world. I agree, though Visayas is a majestic place now, even then actually. 
they did not escape the bloody reins of martial law. Met Zosima Evale. 68 years old from Leyte, who suffered an unsuspecting tragedy of her husband, Victor Espinosa Eval. It is said that a merged group of the Taddad Citizens Home Defense Force beheaded her husband with a small knife in broad daylight in June 27, 1987. Who are the Taddad group? The pseudo-religious Taddad was feared in Barangay Tabok, Sitio Nalibunan, in Abuyog, Leyte. They were proven to kill men and women who were suspected members of the New People's Army. Proud members of the merged Ted Ted CHDF group paraded his head in town and brought it to the municipal hall. Susima described her husband as a silent and hard-working man. Since then, the Eval family was harassed and continued to live in fear. She revealed her barangay was desolated. Her family refused to leave their house as they had no place to go. The military threatened to bomb the place if Susima and others continued to escape them. Two days before the military imposed a deadline for them to surrender, on the 18th of August 1987, Susima finally surrendered. During their interview for the UPLB thesis, they revealed that Eval children are now grown up but still live in fear and Susima while calm, collected and soft-spoken at the time of the interview, remains to seek justice. Whoa, that's a lot to absorb. For now, take a break. Drink water or wipe your tears first. Because we will be back again after a short break. Sana yung mga millennial po, yung mga sa generasyon na to, sana lahat matutunan nila na kung yung naranasan ng mga nauna sa atin. You're still listening to Unraveling Stories of Martial Law Victims, a virtual tour. Can you still digest the events that happened? Because we are not done yet. Up to our last destination, Mindanao. I've got this story from Mindanao. He is a lawyer and was from a family of politicians. He defied the odds of probable abuse and execution as he served justice for the other victims of martial law. I think I know him. Is this Jacobo Ezamantong? Was he also a victim? Yes, it is him. But sadly, he was also killed with his friend Zoro Aguilar, who is also a human rights lawyer. Oh, Zoro Aguilar? The one that was also known to be a far cry from the elegantly dressed, English-speaking lawyers of Makati. Yes, they were well-known lawyers who joined alliances to serve justice for the victims of martial law, as deaths and abuses arose from Zamboanga del Norte. Amatong fought for the cause of justice and human rights, notably the freedom of expression and the press. He advocated for the ordinary man's cause. The Mindanao Guardian resisted martial law by publishing articles critical of the authorities, particularly the military. 
so it somewhat revealed their involvement in the protection of gambling enterprises, extortion, and forgery of military records for blackmail purposes by an intelligence officer. It included samples of summary executions and military bombings of civilians. It also issued petitions on behalf of political convicts. Just like Zor Aguilar did, Aguilar specialized in human rights matters. He worked full-time for the Free Legal Aid Group, representing political prisoners and assisting citizens in asserting their rights during martial law. Aguilar became involved in the protest movement that emerged following the killing of former Senator Benigno Aquino Jr. in 1983. Aguilar also began receiving anonymous threats against his life, which he dismissed. He informed Apal, I am prepared to die. We can continue our service to the poor and exploited people till then, he remarked. I know that these two friends were killed together. On the eve of the anniversary of the implementation of martial law, September 20, 1984, Amantong disobeyed authorities once more, speaking at a gathering condemning military abuses. That week, Amantong and Zoro Aguilar were prepared to join an expedition to record claims of military atrocities in the region and exhume the remains of two people who had been killed in Tampelisan town three months previously. It was said that Amatong and Aguilar were strolling down a downtown street the night before their fact-finding trip when two guys approached and shot them at close range. Aguilar died on the scene while Amatong was taken to a local hospital by a bystander. Amatong died in the hospital eight hours later after being asked three times if he recognized the assailants as he weakly replied, Army. A key witness, the driver of the getaway vehicle, named two soldiers as the murderers, but was also killed one year later. Family and friends sought justice for the government, but no proceedings on the two deaths were ever held. Amantong was from a family of politicians, but this story proves that no matter how powerful your clan may be, as long as you fight against their plans, sacrifices will be made to speak for the unjustified deaths of many. The burial for the two attorneys was attended by almost 10,000 people, a historic event in the Pollock history. <sighs> what a ride we have there, right guys? We've heard tons of stories around the nation. But wait, if you're still here with us, we encourage you to follow Ambeth Ocampo, National Historical Commission of the Philippines, Project Saisai, Philippine Daily Inquirer, and Manila Bulletin to know more about our history. You're still listening to Unraveling Stories of Martial Law Victims, a virtual tour. Today, people of all ages struggle in dealing with the country's rough past, especially in this era of fake news and historical revisionism. It is crucial to accurately learn the dark chapter of our beloved country and to acknowledge the tragic legacy that it engraved to the Filipino people. 
As the philosopher George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. 11,103 victims of human rights violation. This is just a glimpse of the real occurrences of martial law. We hope that this little chat of ours was able to serve as the voice for the unheard. It is an honor to travel with you guys. Continue to research and dig deep into the facts of our history. This is not a goodbye, but till next time, tune in for the future episode of Unraveling Stories of Martial Law Victims. We have just the surface, the submerged, listened to the unheard, and remembered the forgotten. Thank you, and to God be all the glory.